so this psalm kind of comes in the middle of, uh, as Liz read, you know, it's a lot, there's a lot about chaos going on in the psalm. And I think, I don't think I know anyone who lives in this world that would say, this world is basically pretty much as good as it gets. Yeah, this world's all right. Nothing really needs to change that much. I think it's, I think it's pretty good. I mean, we all get that this world can be wonderful. We all get that this world can be amazing, that we should probably be more grateful for it than we are. But really, to the best of people, bad things happen. And the best of people do bad things. Like, we do bad things, bad things happen to us, just kind of how this world is. And this really creates chaos. Order has never resulted from, some, from someone doing something bad or doing something evil. Like, or, disorder always comes from that. It's never like, ah, oh, well, this person is really bad, but really what they did is create this order. Like, no, it's just disorder and chaos always erupts from people who do bad things. And we look at ourselves first, and we, it's really easy to see in our lives, in our relationships, how that's true. So Psalm, Psalm 46 tells us there is a certain kind of uh, chaos in creation, as in bad things ha- will happen to us. But it also tells us there's a certain kind of chaos within ourselves when we do bad things. And I, I don't think that's a very kind of uh, revolutionary thing to say. But sometimes we cause this chaos, and the disorder that happens is a natural consequence. It's just what happens when you do bad things. Sometimes the chaos happens to us because others are doing it to us. Or sometimes the chaos just happens because there's chaos in the world and the world isn't right and it needs to be fixed. But it's not the chaos itself that's the problem because often it's about how we respond when we're living in that chaos. Because we're, we're, trying to avoid chaos is impossible. And so how do we live while that chaos is going on around us? That's what Psalm 46 is all about. How do we respond in a crisis when you feel overwhelmed, when you, feel, uh, when you experience loss, when you experience disappointment? Often what we do is, is we run from God. We lean on ourselves. We don't really run to God with, with our problems because we think we can do it in our own strength. Now, I've been a pastor for over a decade, and I've seen this happen over and over and over again. If someone's marriage isn't going well, they don't run to the church. They pull away from the church. They don't run to relationships. They pull away from relationships. Why is that? Because in chaos, we lean on ourselves. So what Psalm 46 teaches us is that when chaos abounds, God's presence is what rescues us. And it's only through Jesus that we can be rescued when we're in that kind of chaos. So we're going to look at the first half of the psalm for this week, the first seven verses. And if you have one of our Bibles, just keep your Bible open because we'll be looking at these words as we go through. Uh, um, I think it was page 570. Um, really, we're going to look at two things in these first seven verses. One, that we can run to God. And number two, that God has run to us. So we can run to God, and God has run to us. And these first three verses, um, we're going to read how we can run to God. So these first three verses here, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way. And the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. So, what we, God being a refuge, God being strength, God being ever present help in trouble, means that God's a safe shelter for us. There's chaos that's going on around us, but there's something about God that we can run to who's going to protect us from that. He's a place of help when we need it. Now, there's, that word refuge, um, there's all sorts of different kind of nuances of meaning for what that word is about. Uh, people who would take refuge, first, literally, a shelter in a rainstorm. Like if you're out there tending fields and you're a shepherd and it starts raining like crazy, a refuge is a thing that will stop you from getting super wet. 
um, or stop you from a super blazing sun in the middle of a day, which happens, you know, when you're living in the desert. Uh, a refuge can also be a place where sick people would go. The temple in Jerusalem was described as a place where if you were sick, if, especially if you had something like uh, some kind of uh, sickness that would keep you apart from other people, you'd go to the temple, you could be cleansed. Um, people who were in trouble would be cared for in the temple. If you were accused... In the Old Testament, there were these things called cities of refuge, six different cities, that if you were accused of a crime or if you accidentally hurt or, or killed somebody, you could go to these cities of refuge and, and be protected. Basically, like, let's say if you go into the forest with your neighbor to cut wood, and as you swing your axe, I mean, you guys all know what I'm talking about because you guys all chop wood, right? Yeah. As you swing in your axe, as we all know, uh, you know, the axe head flies off and kills your neighbor that neighbor's family is going to be kind of angry with you. And maybe that neighbor's family wants to kill you now. So you can go to the city of refuge and you can be protected. The city of refuge will take you in and will protect you until like the heat boils down a little bit. And you try and, and then we try and uh, settle a situation so that you don't get killed. So that's, that's another word for refuge. Another thing for refuge would be that if you're in trouble, like a weak nation... If you're a small little weak nation, you're surrounded by all these other nations that want to take you over, you could go to another nation as a refuge to protect you. So God is a refuge there. We also learn that God is a fortress. The last word in verse 7, the God of Jacob is our fortress. So a fortress is a little bit different than a refuge. That's just too amazingly cute. We just like all take a pause, just look at these two little guys, Max and Isaac, just... So um, a fortress is a little bit different than a refuge. So a fortress is, uh, so a refuge is like a place of, of where we can go for trouble. A fortress is like a, a strong commanding defense against an enemy. It's where you run to when enemies are invading. You run to a fortress. You hold yourself up in a fortress. A fortress has high walls, has a thick walls. It takes the high ground because it's built to defend against attacking enemies. It's security. If an army is coming after you, you don't really want a refuge. You want a fortress you want to protect yourself. So who runs to a refuge or who runs to a fortress? Well, people who are in need run to a refuge. If you're sick, if you're in trouble, if you have a burden of guilt, if you're accused, the weak who need strength, these are the people who run to a refuge. Who are people to run to, to a fortress? Well, when the armies of chaos come invading our back gardens and come kicking through our front door, we realize that all the defenses we spent so much time building up are actually no match. So we need to run to a fortress. People who are in need, those are the people who run to a fortress. Now, there are reasons to not run to a refuge. There are reasons to not run to a fortress. You might think you don't need it. Like, ah, I'm strong enough by myself. Things are going all right. My own defenses are enough. Like, I'm not really sick. I'm not really needy. I don't really have guilt. I don't really have burdens. But how does this, the psalmist describe the world here? The earth is giving way. Like mountains are falling into the heart of the sea. That's an overwhelming problem. No human can stand under that by themselves. Who can handle life when the mountains are literally crumbling? So you might think you don't need it, or you might think you don't trust it. Maybe you feel like I am needy, but I don't really trust this particular refuge. I don't really trust that fortress to hold when the armies are coming in. I'm running to somewhere, but I don't trust that this city is going to accept me and protect me. Or I see that army of chaos marching in. I'm, but looking at that fortress, I don't think that thing is going to hold. So I'm going to go somewhere else. But we all need refuge. We all need a fortress. And we, we can trust it. Because without God to run to, we will be overcome one way or another eventually. Without God to trust, we will be overtaken one way or another. 
I mean, the way that trouble is described in the psalm is kind of no match for mere humans to take. Creation is, is kind of reversed. God, God created creation to be very orderly and to be like a theater to display his love, to display his glory to us. But the way the psalm talks about creation is it's like reversed. It's against us. It's taking over us. Now, a refuge and a fortress doesn't remove the chaos because these mountains are still crumbling. Earthquakes are still happening. But it brings us through the chaos. It's a lot like um, Noah and the Ark. The story of Noah and the Ark, I think, is a great picture of this. We find a literal calamity of nature where the flood is wiping out all sorts of people and the waters are roaring and the waters are foaming, a lot like the way that the psalmist is talking about waters here. And the chaos of water is about to be unleashed on everyone to kill everybody who's been walking on the earth that we know of. And Noah, who's characterized as righteous because he walks with God, as someone who runs to God, is protected. Now, God provides the plans for a literal structure, a shelter, a refuge, or a fortress against these things for Noah and his family to, uh, to be a refuge against these waters of judgment that were against him. Noah listens, and he follows through in obedience. Now, God doesn't remove Noah from the situation. He's, literally, he's right in the middle of it. He's going through it. The chaos will come, but God provides a refuge while Noah is in it, because God is there with Noah. And outside of God's refuge, there's chaos and there's death. Inside God's refuge, there's protection, there's life. So if rains are coming, you want to shelter. We can run to God for the shelter that we need. I think running to, to God can look, like, um, can look like different things. can look like worshiping together. can look like we're doing today. can look like praying and speaking with each other. First and foremost, the most fundamental aspect of running to God is his word, and it's through prayer. Because it's through God's word that he speaks, and through prayer that we get to speak back to him. I think running is actually a great metaphor here because it requires work. Running requires dedication. I mean, I like to run. Christina likes to run, but let me tell you, running is, is kind of dumb. Running is, is kind of dumb because you can always just stop. It's so easy to not do. Is there anything easier to not do than run? You can just like walk everywhere. Even when you're in the middle of it, the easiest thing, you can just stop. At least when on your bike, you coast a little bit. You're like, okay, I guess I need to pedal a little bit more. With running, you just, uh, that's it, I'm done. And then you're not running anymore. That's it, it's the end. You can always just stop. So uh, holiday time, when you're on holiday, it's difficult to stay reading the Bible consistently. At least for me, I don't know what you guys experience. Just because I don't drift towards running. I don't want to run when I wake up in the morning. Christina doesn't want to run when she wakes up in the morning. We don't drift like, oh, how some, all of a sudden I found myself running on a trail. It's just not how it works. We don't drift towards that. It's a conscious decision. So if I know if I want to run in the morning, I have to make all these kind of decisions beforehand to make sure I actually do the thing that I really actually want to do. Because I do want to run, sort of. Maybe 51% of me does. So I'll have to find my clothes the night before, put them out, make sure my shoes are there, sort out whatever route I want to run ahead of time. Then when my alarm goes off in the morning, I have to actually wake up, then run. I have some runs where I want to keep going, and I'm like, yeah, this is great. I actually enjoy this thing. Where really the best part of running is when you stop, when you don't run anymore. But there's times where I'm motivated, and I have some runs where every step is actually an effort to just not stop. And that's not fun, but I do it anyway. I'm not breaking any records. I'm not doing anything amazing. I just want to keep going. And I think that's what it's like to run to God. We're not amazing. We're not breaking any records. We're not like super professional, amazing Christians that people are going to write books about. It's just not, and that's not what we're called to. We're just called to not stop. Making time for God in the word, making time for prayer, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it feels really great. Sometimes it doesn't and it just feels like work. And there's a reason why it's called a spiritual discipline. It's easy to drift and not run to God. 
I think that our default is just to drift and to not run to God unless we're focused on doing that, unless we have other people who are helping us stay focused on that. But there's really so much to be found in just keep going. That's so much of, of what it means to run to God. So if we want a relationship with Jesus and we don't hear him speak to us and we don't speak to him, that's not really a relationship. That reduces Christianity to a set of beliefs. And a set of beliefs is not going to stand when we come into the chaos. A set of beliefs are easily wiped out. But a relationship with Jesus that has to do with a set of beliefs, but it's not fundamental. A relationship with Jesus actually can stand when the chaos comes in. Because it's God who's a strong fortress. And so we should run to him. And we need others telling us to run to him. Because here's the other thing. If I tell someone ahead of time, text me at whatever time in the morning so that I will actually run, that is so much more motivation. Surely we can apply that to our Christian life in the same kind of way. That's what it means to be a family, to keep us running together. Now, sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances where we just don't feel like where we, we can run. We just feel like we're out of, out of the energy to do it. Where we feel like we've already been overtaken. Maybe like that army has already invaded and already overtaken us. Where we feel like we just don't have it in us to, to even think of running, let alone do it. What, what then? Well, God isn't just a place to run to because his presence is our rescue. And he has run to us. God has run to us. So verse one, where it says uh, that God is an ever-present help. That means we don't have to run to him merely. Like he's ever-present, which means he's already with us. And verse seven says that too. The Lord Almighty is with us. The Lord Almighty is a way to say like the Lord who commands like the armies of angels in heaven. That's the God who is with us. So God isn't just like an ever-present help. God isn't described as someone who helps. It says God is an ever-present help. Like this is a direct like characterization. It's not even a metaphor or a simile. This is, this is who God is. It's part of his fundamental character, part of who he is. Part of God's own identity is a help that is always with us. And when the earth is giving away, when the armies are coming to evade, that's really, really good news. <laughs> so no other thing we trust can ever be ever-present. We can trust in all sorts of things, all sorts of good things, all sorts of bad things. We have addictions. We have addictions to money and careers and families and alcohol and friends and whatever it is. And these things can get through us through some hard times, but they can't always be there for us as much as they might even be good. Money comes and goes. Careers come and go. Families won't always be able to be there for us. Getting drunk might be a temporary relief as we forget our problems, but the problem's always going to be there. It's always going to come back. And God is always here, always with us. Deuteronomy 4.7, I think I have this on the, yeah, it says this. It says, what, are the, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray to him? <laughs> it was there the whole time. <laughs> what other nation is so great? And this is talking about God's people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them the way that the Lord our God is near us when we pray to him? No other people get to, have a people get to have a God as close to us as God is to us. There's no other God that is near to us like the Lord. Our God is infinite. Infinite. That means he's in every single place at all times. I don't even know what that means, but that's true. He can be everywhere at once, at all times at once. I mean, it's kind of trippy when you think about it. Like, how, what, in the, what does that mean? That also means he's present in all of our spiritual conditions, 
when he feels like he's far away, when we're doing that thing that we're super shameful about, when we are thinking of the thing that we did a long time ago that now we're super shameful about. God is just as present then as he is when we have like a spiritual high. When we're in the middle of whatever brings us the most shame, he's there, the most guilt, he's there. And whenever you felt far from God, it's not because he's withholding his presence from us. He's there. He is with us. So how is this help described? If it's, if it, if it's a help that's always there, how is it described? Um, well, help is, uh, the Hebrew word here is Ezra, and it's generally used when talking about military power, kind of like an overwhelming military power. This kind of help is coming in with kind of guns blazing, coming with a, a relief regiment, calling it an airstrike. When the army is defeated, this kind of help is the kind that bolsters the troops to change the tide and win the battle. It's this kind of help that is always with us always with us. So just look at some of the metaphors a bit, because I think it's striking. Um, in, verse, in verse six, nations are in an uproar, kingdoms fall, he lifts his voice, and the earth melts. God's words melt the earth. Now, this psalm is often used as a comfort for people, and there is comfort here, for sure. There's not, it's not a big, massive thing, but it's also kind of terrible when you think about it, terrible in the best kind of original definition it's awful or awesome, like it's full of awe. God having a voice that's going to melt the earth? What in the, that is beyond imagination. So if you thought you should fear the raging waters or, or the quaking mountains, you're wrong. What we should, the, the most scary thing in this psalm is God himself lifting his voice and the earth melting. And under God's voice, we all melt. So all this help sounds great, unless like, we're included in that melting. That would not be so great. It would not be good to be melted under God's voice. And what we need is not just someone with power who can just do whatever he wants, full stop. We need someone who has power and love. Because without either, there are problems. Martin Luther King Jr. has a great quote about this. Said, power without love is reckless and abusive. Love without power is sentimental and anemic. It doesn't do anything. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. We need to have both power and love working together. I think that's what we see in this psalm, because God has a city, a city that won't fall, it won't melt, because God's presence is there. That's where God lives, God's presence. Verses five and six, hear this. This is God's city. God is within her, this city. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. And in verse four, there's a river whose streams make, make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. This is where God is living. For all those who trust in Jesus, this is where we live. This is, this is where we live. The city of God is a holy place. The holy means set apart, means different, means unique. The city is holy, it's different because it's where the most high dwells. So the thing that makes something holy isn't because of actions, it's because of God's presence. That's what makes something holy. The city is holy because it's where the Most High dwells. The thing that makes something holy is God's presence. And it's set apart from all these other places. It's different because that's where God lives. Unlike every other city that has existed or will exist, this city won't fall. This is not going to be melting under God's voice. It's eternal. She will not fall. And when the night seems like it will last forever, God will bring in the day. His presence breaks the night and brings in the new day. 
I read a, um, an insane, I listened, actually, it was a few years ago, I listened to an insane story um, that I think I just have to tell it. Uh, so it's about uh, these American sailors. Um, the main person who was telling this story, her name was Deborah Scaling Kylie. She was an experienced sailor. She was part of a crew that began in Maine, so the very northeast part of America, um, sailing a yacht that was recently bought by people in Florida, so down like the east coast of, of the U.S. It was about like 1,200 miles. It would take about six days for someone to, to sail this yacht from Maine to Florida. The first day, everything went fine. I think there was like a crew of six or eight people or something like that. The second day, they ran into a tropical storm. Uh, which is difficult enough. It was kind of, they weren't expecting it and they're sailing right into the storm. To add to this, the captain was drunk. He fell asleep at the wheel in the middle of the night when everyone else was kind of sleeping. So Deborah Scaling Kylie woke up in the middle of that second day night, uh, icy water kind of pouring into the cabin and the boat was capsizing. Now to add to all of this, the captain's girlfriend, who was part of the crew, even though she didn't really have any like sailing experience, had really badly cut her leg on a piece of rigging as the ship was kind of turning over. Now the whole crew, because the ship was capsizing, the whole crew jumped into the water and Deborah uh, inflated a dinghy. But then they saw like all sorts of sharks around them. In fact, like the way she described it, and she's like, the way she's telling the story is very kind of matter of fact, because I guess... That's how experienced sailors talk. I don't know. Um, she said there were like hundreds of fins kind of like circling around in the, in the Atlantic Ocean. The, she said, the minute we got in there were fins surrounding the dinghy. They were everywhere, basically knowing that, I guess, there was food there and the blood from the captain's girlfriend probably attracted all these sharks. And they were all great white sharks. Great white sharks are the kind that like to eat people because they're huge. So sharks began to actually ram the dinghy. So the boat is capsizing, the captain's kind of drunk, the girlfriend has busted her leg. They're in this kind of small dinghy in the middle of a tropical storm. Sharks are literally like ramming, like what in the world is going on? This is actually real life. Uh, sharks began to ram the dinghy. They, they grabbed the rope in front of the dinghy and were like pulling the dinghy around, I guess, to like maybe have them fall off. It's kind of like Sharknado or something. So, so far, so we have tropical storm, drunk captain, injured crew member, capsized boat, sharks. After a few days of the crew in the small little dinghy, just surviving, everyone's becoming dehydrated, they start hallucinating, the captain's girlfriend's um, cut is like super infected, and because there's like water sloshing around and the, everyone like has all these like infections and sores all over their bodies, uh, the, the injured uh, captain's girlfriend uh, Eventually, she died, so they had to throw her overboard. Uh, people started hallucinating. One guy thought he saw land, so he jumped into the water, immediately was eaten by sharks. Another guy uh, was hallucinating, said, oh, I'm going to go to the corner store, get some beer and cigarettes. Somehow ended up under the dinghy, and sharks are like tearing him up. Like They feel like him getting eaten. Like This is, cra this is crazy stuff. I won't go into all the, uh, all the nasty stuff. Uh, Blood-curdling kind of stuff, all these people getting eaten by sharks. Eventually... I think it was after four days, a Russian cargo ship finds them and they threw life preservers into the ocean. And the two remaining crew members, there was only two, I think out of six or eight, or however many, however many people were there, were saved. Deborah Scaling Kylie said, I didn't care who these people were or where they were going when she saw that ship. I was there and I was alive. Now the trouble just kept on mounting for these people. It just seems like if you were to write a crazy story, that's how you would write it. Things are just getting worse. Maybe if like, they got on, toward, on board like the Russian ship and all of a sudden it's like, you know, some kind of pirate ship or something, but that didn't happen. But without that passing ship, these people would not have made it. They would have died. They needed to be rescued by someone else coming to them. Now, I'm sure when they saw that ship, it felt like a break of a new day. It felt like something completely new, like they had their life extended for them. They were desperate. They were clinging to whatever they could to just make it another hour. And then they were helped in their trouble when it felt like it got the worst. 
I think this is the kind of trouble that God's ever-present help is powerful enough to overcome. When the thing happens, that is worse than anything we've experienced. That's what Psalm 46 is describing here, the worst thing we could imagine, and yet God can still be our help. So if he can be our help when mountains are falling into the sea, surely he can be our help when we're slightly discouraged. Surely he can be our help when we're feeling depressed. Surely he can be our help when we're feeling lonely, when we feel like no one gets us or no one understands us. When that toddler tantrum comes, and you're like, again. When we feel left out, God has run to us and he's thrown his life preserver because all of us by ourselves were in trouble. At one time, all of us were in trouble, worse than anything we've experienced. I mean, do you hear how God has been described so far, his voice melting the earth? So if you are against God, you'll, you just aren't gonna stand. So if you're not good with God, we have two problems. The chaos of life will overtake us in this world. But if we're not with God now, we can't expect to be with God in the next world. And the voice of God will melt us. And so if we don't want God's presence in our life, we can live that way if we want, and there's just gonna be the natural consequences from living in that way. But the good news is that there is such a better way to live. There's a better way to live. The good news is that through Jesus, we actually can be always with God. And we don't need to fear his earth-melting voice. We actually get the protection of that earth-melting voice because our trouble became Jesus' trouble. And we get to be part of the river of people that make God glad. Verse four says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There are people streaming into this city, so many people moving with such speed that it's described as a river, like a river of people streaming into the city. It looks like a flowing river. And all these people, they make God glad. They're a symbol of what the son has accomplished. The son of the father spent his life so people like you and me can be rescued from all our troubles. He took the trouble on. He relieved us of that trouble. And now we get to be part of the river of people that are going to make God glad. The river of people that do make God glad. And this is true in, in, in eternal perspective, in that Jesus took all of our chaos upon himself. Everything bad we've done, everything bad we're going to do, everything bad we're doing right now, the Father used his voice against that chaos, and Jesus was melted, but he wasn't completely destroyed. Because now Jesus lifts his voice against all that would seek to do us harm, everything that holds us back from being humans fully alive. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And we haven't done anything to earn it. He has included us. And we get to be uh, beneficiaries of what it means to be part of the city of God. Now, if we believe that on an eternal scale, this is also true in everyday life. We can li actually live this out every day as if it's true, because it is actually true. You are holy because God is there. Not because of you're amazing, not because you're super passionate, not because of this thing or that thing. It's because God is present. You can run to God. He's not against us. He's actually for us. He's a refuge. Refuges are not against people. Refuges, refuges are good things for people. And we can run to God because God's always run to us. The Father isn't out to get us. He's out to pursue us, to, that, that we might experience more of his love. There's a song um, an artist I like, uh, Thad Cockrell wrote. He says, uh, he knows the names of my sorrows. He knows the names of my fears. Why should I let them bother me? For I know he is near. If we really knew who God was, and if we really understood that he's near to us, regardless of whatever we might experience, that doesn't say that life is going to be easy, because there's going to be all sorts of difficulties in life, but it does mean that we, on a different level, can have them not bother us as we would otherwise, because we know God's near.
So the Christian life is always running to God while also always living in the presence of God. Those two realities are true. And this is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives now. The Spirit is always bringing us before God, always spurring us on, always bringing to our hearts and minds the truth of being in God's presence right now in the moment, basking in his love. It's not up to us to generate our own power to run to God. It's not like, oh, if I try really hard, then yeah, maybe I can do that run to God thing. It's all about the Spirit working through us and enabling us to do that. He empowers us. And now we get the choice to respond to that. It's not like we just sit back and drift towards God, right? It's not something that we do. But without the Spirit working, none of us would want to run to God. It's just not something we would like to do. So it's another way we can grow in our dependence on the Holy Spirit in our lives. And one aspect of running to God is what we get to do together here on Sundays. We celebrate the Lord's Supper here each week as a grounding ritual for our lives. Now, rituals in themselves don't have to be empty. Empty rituals obviously are empty, but we have all sorts of rituals that we do. We all have our morning ritual. We all have our like, bedtime ritual. Colin has a very uh, organized bedtime ritual so that he'll sleep really well. I think the same thing for us. If we have these really helpful grounding rituals in our lives, it helps other parts of our lives work better. And uh, one of the rituals that we do is we gather on Sundays. We sing songs. We hear God's word. We, we pray together. And celebrating the Lord's Supper is also one of them. It's an opportunity each week to declare to God how we are running to him, because we literally walk up here. If you've not taken uh, the Lord's Supper with us, what we do is we take a a piece of bread off, we dip it either in the juice or the wine, and we go back. So as we walk up, for those who want to participate, well, as we walk up, what we're saying is we're running to you. A very slow run, and it might look like a crawl, right? But that's sometimes what the Christian life is like. We're all saying the same thing, regardless of our background, regardless of whatever's happened this week, whatever will happen this week, we're declaring we will run to God. It's an opportunity also each week to savor the reality that God has run to us. The bread is a symbol of Jesus's body. Jesus saw our chaos. He took it upon himself, gladly took it upon himself, not because he was excited about the cross, but because he was excited about what we get to experience now, which is his love in a way we didn't experience otherwise. And he put all of our brokenness, all of our chaos to death, which meant he had to die. The wine is a symbol of Jesus' blood that he bled out on our behalf to experience what we were experiencing today. And Jesus told us to celebrate this bread and the cup as a reminder for what he's done for us, not for us to pay it back, not for us to feel guilty about like feeling bad, about not being good enough for him, but as a stamp of authenticity of his love for us. So as we sing songs, We'll, we'll celebrate communion together. Let's be thankful. Let's be grateful. And sometimes we don't, we're not really sure what kind of emotion to have when we come up here. Um, but I don't think we have to be morose about it. I think we can be joyful and celebrate the fact that God's voice has not melted us. We are part of the city of God, and, we're, and we make God glad. That's amazing. Now, if you don't yet, yet believe these things, uh, don't come up here and act like you do. We don't want you to lie to yourself. But also know this table's open for anyone. Whether you've never taken this before, this might be your first step in running to God, or whether you've taken this before lots of times. So we're not only rescued, we're now the object of the Father's love. And God's presence is what rescues us. So we can run to God, and God has run to us. Let me pray.